Chapter Eleven, Part One of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The winter of eighteen sixty seven through sixty eight found me comfortably quartered at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, on the banks of the Missouri. A considerable portion of my regiment had been ordered to locate at that post in the fall and make that their winter quarters. General Sheridan, then commanding the military department, had also established his headquarters there, so that the post became more than ever the favorite military station in the West. I had not been on duty with my regiment since my rapid ride from Fort Wallace to Fort Harker in July, nor was I destined to serve with it in the field for some time to come. This, at a time, seemed a great deprivation for me but subsequent events proved most conclusively that it was for all the best and the result could not have been to me more satisfactory than it was showing as it did that the best laid plans of mice and men etc but i am anticipating those who have read the tabulated list of depredations committed by the indians as given in the article describing general forsyth's desperate fight on the arikachee fork may have noticed the name of William Comstock in the column of killed. Comstock was a favorite and best-known scout on the Central Plains. Frequent reference has been made to him in preceding numbers, particularly in the description of the attack of the Indians on the detachment commanded by Robbins and Cook. Strange as it may seem, when his thorough knowledge of the Indian character is considered, he fell victim to their treachery and barbarity. The Indians were encamped with their village not far from Big Spring Station in western Kansas, and were professedly at peace. Still, no one familiar with the deceit and bad faith invariably practiced by the Indians when free to follow the bent of their inclinations, ought to have thought of trusting themselves in their power. Yet Comstock, with all his previous knowledge and experience, did that which he would certainly have disapproved in others. He left the camp of the troops, which was but a few miles from the Indian village, and with but a single companion rode to the latter, and spent several hours in friendly conversation with the chiefs. Nothing occurred during their visit to excite suspicion. The Indians assumed a most peaceable bearing toward them, and were profuse in their demonstration of friendship. When the time came for Comstock and his comrade to take their departure, they were urged by the Indians to remain and spend the night in the village. The invitation was declined, and after the usual salutations, the two white men mounted their horses and set out to return to their camp. Comstock always carried in his belt a beautiful white-handled revolver and wore it on this occasion this had often attracted the covetous eyes of savages and while in the village propositions to barter for it had been made by more than one of the warriors comstock invariably refused all offers to exchange it no matter how tempting months before when riding together at the head of the column in pursuit of indians Comstock, who had observed that I carried a revolver closely resembling his, remarked that I ought to have the pair, and then laughingly added that he would carry his until we found the Indians, and after giving them a sound whipping, he would present me with the revolver. 
frequently during the campaign when on the march and while sitting around the evening campfire comstock would refer to his promise concerning the revolver after hunting indians all summer but never finding them just when we desired them comstock was not infrequently joked upon the condition under which he was to part with his revolver and fears were expressed that if he carried it until we caught and whipped the indians he might be forced to go armed for a long time none of us imagined then that the revolver which was so often the subject of jest and of which comstock was so proud would be the pretext for his massacre comstock and his companion rode out of the village in the direction of their own camp totally unconscious of coming danger and least of all from these whose guests they had just been they had proceeded about a mile from the village when they observed about a dozen of the young warriors galloping after them still suspecting no unfriendly design they continued their ride until joined by the young warriors the entire party then rode in company until as was afterward apparent the indians succeeded in separating the two white men the one riding in front the other comstock following in the rear each with indians riding on either side of them at a preconcerted signal a combined attack was made by the savages upon the two white men both the latter attempted to defend themselves but the odds and the suddenness of the attack deprived them of all hope of saving their lives comstock was fatally wounded at the first onslaught and soon after was shot from his horse his companion being finally mounted wisely entrusted his life to the speed of his horse and soon outstripped his pursuers and reached camp but with a few slight wounds the indians did not seem disposed to press him as closely as their usual custom but seemed only anxious to secure comstock he after falling to the ground severely wounded was completely riddled by steel-pointed arrows and his scalp taken the principal trophy however in the opinion of the savages was a beautifully finished revolver with its white ivory handle and as they afterward confessed when peace was proclaimed with their tribe it was to obtain this revolver that the party of young warriors left the village and followed comstock to his death thoroughly reliable in his reports brave modest and preserving in character with a remarkable knowledge of the country and the savage tribes infesting it he was the superior of all men who were scouts by profession with whom i have had any experience while sitting in my quarters one day at fort leavenworth late in the fall of eighteen sixty seven a gentleman was announced whose name recalled a sad and harrowing sight it proved to be the father of lieutenant kidder whose massacre with that of his entire party of eleven men was described in preceding pages it will be remembered that the savages had hacked mangled and burned the bodies of kidder and his men to such an extent that it was impossible to recognize the body of a single one of the party even the clothing had been removed so that we could not distinguish the officer from his men or the men from each other by any fragment of their uniform or insignia of their grade mr kidder after introducing himself announced the object of his visit it was to ascertain the spot where the remains of his son lay buried and after procuring suitable military escort to proceed to the grave 
and disinter his son's remains preparatory to transferring them to a resting place in dakota of which territory he was at that time one of the judiciary it was a painful task i had to perform when i communicated to the father the details of the killing of his son and followers and equally harassing to the feelings was it to have to inform him that there were no possible chances of his being able to recognize his son's remains was there not the faintest mark or fragment of his uniform by which he might be known inquired the anxious parent not one was the reluctant reply and yet since i still recall the appearance of the mangled and disfigured remains there was a mere trifle which attracted my attention but it could not have been your son who wore it what was it eagerly inquired his father it was simply the collar band of one of those ordinary check overshirts so commonly worn on the plains the color being black and white the remainder of the garment as well as all other articles of the dress having been torn or burned from the body mr kidder then requested me to repeat the description of the collar and material of which it was made happily i had some cloth of similar appearance and upon exhibiting this to mr kidder to show the kind i meant he declared that the body i referred to could be no other than that of his murdered son he went on to tell us how his son had received his appointment in the army but a few weeks before his lamentable death he only having reported for duty with his company a few days before being sent out on the scout which terminated his life and how before leaving home to engage in the military service his mother with that thoughtful care and tenderness which only a mother can feel prepared some articles of wearing apparel among others a few shirts made from the checkered material already described mr kidder had been to fort sedgwick on the platte from which post his son had last departed and there learned that on leaving the post he wore one of the checkered shirts and put an extra one in his saddle pockets upon this trittling link of evidence mr kidder proceeded four hundred miles west to fort wallace and there furnished with military escort visited the grave containing the bodies of the twelve massacred men upon disinterring the remains a body was found as i had described it bearing the simple checked collar band the father recognized the remains of his son and thus as was stated at the close of a preceding chapter was the evidence of a mother's love that made the means by which her son's body was recognized and reclaimed when all others had failed the winter and spring of eighteen sixty eight were uneventful so far as indian hostilities or the movements of troops were concerned to be on the ground when its services could be made available in the case of indians becoming troublesome the seventh cavalry left its winter quarters at fort leavenworth in april and marched two hundred and ninety miles west to a point near the present site of fort hayes where the troops established their summer rendezvous in camp it not being my privilege to serve with the regiment at that time i remained at fort leavenworth some time longer and later in the summer repaired to my home in michigan there amid the society of friends to enjoy the cool breezes of the erie until the time came which would require me to go west in the meantime until i can relate some of the scenes which were enacted under my own eye 
and which were afterwards the subject of excited and angry comment as well as emphatic and authoritative approval it will not be uninteresting to examine into some of the cases which led to the memorial winter campaign of eighteen sixty eight to sixty nine including the battle of the washita and the reader may also be enabled to judge as to what causes the people of the frontier are most indebted for the comparatively peaceful condition of the savage tribes of the plains during the past three years the question may also arise as to what influence the wild nomadic tribes of the west are most likely to yield and become peaceable inclined toward their white neighbors willing to forego their accustomed raids and attacks upon the frontier settlements and content to no longer oppose the advance of civilization whether this desirable condition of affairs can be permanently at best secured by the display and exercise of strong but just military power or by the extension of the olive branch or one hand and government annuities on the other or by a happy combination of both has long been one of the difficult problems whose solution was baffled the judgment of our legislators from the formation of the government to the present time my firm conviction based upon an intimate and thoroughly analysis of the habits traits and characters and natural instinct of the indian and strengthened and supported by the almost unanimous opinion of all persons who have made the indian problem a study and have studied it not from a distance but in immediate contact with all the facts bearing thereupon it is that the indian cannot be elevated to the great level where he can be induced to adopt any policy or mode of life varying from those to which he has ever been accustomed by any method of teaching argument reasoning or coaxing which is not preceded and followed closely in reserve by a superior physical force in other words the indian is capable of recognizing no controlling influence but that of stern arbitrary power to assume that he can be guided by appeals to his ideas of moral right and wrong independent of threatening or final compulsion is to place him far above his more civilized brothers of the white race who in the most advanced stage of refinement and morality still find it necessary to employ force sometimes resort to war to exact justice from a neighboring nation and yet there are those who will argue that the indian with all his lack of moral privileges is so superior to the white race as to be capable of being controlled by his savage traits and customs and induced to lead a proper life simply by being politely requested to do so the campaign of eighteen sixty eight through sixty nine under the direction of general sherman who had entire command of the country infested by five troublesome and warlike tribes the cheyennes arapahoes kiowas comanches and apaches was fruitful in variable results at the same time the opponents of a war policy raised the cry that the military were making war on friendly indians one writer an indian agent even asserted that the troops had attacked and killed indians half civilized who have fought on the side of the government during the war with the confederate states it was claimed by the adherents of the peace party that the indians above had been guilty of no depredations against the whites 
and have done nothing deserving of the exercise of military power. I believe it is a rule and evidence that a party coming into court is not expected to impeach his own witness. I propose to show by the official statement of the officers of the Indian Department, including some of those who were loudest and most determined in their assertions of the innocence of the Indians after prompt punishment had been administered by the military, that the Indian tribes whose names have been given were individually and collectively guilty of unprovoked and barbarous assaults on the settlers of the frontier, that they committed these depredations at the very time they were receiving arms and other presents from the government, and that no provocation had been offered either by the government or the defenseless citizens of the border. In other words, by those advocating the Indian side of the dispute, it will be clearly established that a solemn treaty had been reluctantly entered into between the Indians and the government, by which the demands of the Indians were complied with, and the conditions embraced in the treaty afterwards faithfully carried out on the part of the government, and that the very time that the leading chiefs and old men of the tribes were pledging themselves and their people that they will not attack any persons at home or traveling, or disturb any property belonging to the people of the United States, or to persons friendly therewithin, and that they will never capture or carry off from the settlements women or children, and they will never kill or scalp white men or attempt to do them harm. The young men and warriors of these same tribes embrace the sons of the most prominent chiefs and signers of the treaty, were actually engaged in devastating the settlements on the Kansas frontier, murdering men, women, and children, and driving off stock. Now to the evidence. First, glance at the following brief summary of the terms of the treaty which was ratified between the government and the Cheyennes and Arapahoes on the 19th of August, 1868, and signed and agreed to by all the chiefs of these tribes known or claiming to be prominent, and men of influence among their own people. As the terms of the treaty are almost identical with those contained in most of the treaties made with other tribes, excepting the limits and location of reservations, it will be interesting for purpose of reference. First, peace and friendship shall forever continue. Second, whites or Indians committing wrongs will be punished according to the law. Third, the following district of country to wit, commencing at the point where the Arkansas River crosses the 37th parallel of north latitude, thence west on said parallel, then said line being the southern boundary of the state of Kansas, to the Cimarron River, sometimes called the Red Fork of the Arkansas River, thence down said Cimarron River in the middle of the main channel thereof, to the Arkansas River, thence up the Arkansas River in the middle of the main channel thereof, to the place of beginning, is set apart for the Cheyenne and Arapaho Indians. Fourth, the said Indian shall have the right to hunt on the unoccupied lands of the United States, so long as game may be found thereon, and so long as peace subsists among the whites and Indians on the border of the hunting districts. Fifth, is a provision for the selection and occupation of lands for those of said Indians who desire to commence farming on said reserve, 
and for expenditures for their benefit. Sixth, the United States further provides an additional distribution of clothing for a term of years. The treaty with the Kiowas, Comanche, and Apache tribes ratified August 25, 1868, embrace substantially the same provisions as those just quoted, excepting that relating to their reservation, which was as follows. Commencing at a point where the Washita River crosses the 98th meridian west from Greenwich, thence upon the Washita River in the middle of the main channel, thereof to a point 30 miles west of Fort Cobb, as now established, thence due west to the north folk of the Red River, providing said line strikes said river east of the 100th meridian of the west longitude, if not, then only to said meridian line, and then south on said meridian line to the said north fork of the Red River, thence down said north fork, in the middle of the main channel thereof, from the point where it may be first intersected by the lines above described, to the main Red River, thence down said river in the main channel thereof, to its intersection with the 98th meridian of longitude west of Greenwich, thence north on said meridian line to the place of the beginning. To those who proposed to follow the movements of the troops during the winter campaign of 1868 through 69, it will be well to bear in mind the limits of the last name reservation, as the charge was made by the Indian agents that the military had attacked the Indians where the latter were peacefully located within the limits of their reservation. To show that the government thought its civil agents were doing everything required of it to satisfy the Indians, and that the agent of the Cheyennes and Arapahoes was firmly of the opinion that every promise of the government had not only been faithfully carried out, but that the Indians themselves had no complaint to make. The following letter from the agent to the superintendent of Indian Affairs is submitted. Fort Larne, Kansas, August 10, 1868. Sir, I have the honor to inform you that I yesterday made the whole issue of annuity goods, arms, and ammunition to the Cheyenne chiefs, the Arapahoes and the Apaches had received their portions in July, and people of their nation. They were delighted at receiving the goods, particularly the arms and ammunition, and never before have I known them to be better satisfied and express themselves as being so well contented previous to the issue. I made them a long speech following your late instruction with reference to what I said to them. They have now left for their hunting grounds, and I am perfectly satisfied that there will be no trouble with them this season, and consequently with no Indians of my agency. I have the honor to be, with much respect, your obedient service, E. W. Winecoop, United States Indian Agent, Honorable Thomas Murphy, Superintendent. Indian Affairs. The italics are mine, but I desire to invite attention to the confidence and strong reliance placed in these Indians by a man who was intimately associated with them, interested in their welfare, and supposed to be able to speak authoritatively as to their character and intentions. If they could deceive him, it is not surprising that other equally well-meaning persons further east should be equally misled. The above letter is dated August 10, 1868. The following extract is from a letter written by the same party and to the Superintendent of Indian Affairs, 
dated at the same place on the 10th of September, 1868, exactly one month after his positive declaration that the Cheyennes were perfectly satisfied and there will be no trouble with them this season. Here is the extract referred to. Subsequently, I received permission from the department to issue them their arms and ammunition, which I accordingly did. But a short time before the issue was made, a war party had started north from Cheyenne Village on the war path against the Pawnees, and they, not knowing of the issue and smarting under their supposed wrongs committed by the outrages on the Saline River, which have led to the present unfortunate aspect of affairs. The United States troops are now south of the Arkansas River in hot pursuit of the Cheyennes, an effect of which I think will be to plunge other tribes into difficulty and finally culminate in a general Indian war. It will be observed that no justification is offered for the guilty Indians, except that they had been aware of the wise and beneficial intention of the government to issue them a fresh supply of arms. They might have delayed their murderous raids against the defenseless settlers until after the issue. Fears are also expressed that other tribes may be plunged into difficulty, but by the same witness and others it is easily established that the other tribes referred to were represented prominently in the war party which had devastated the settlements on the Saline. First, I will submit an extract of a letter dated Fort Larne, August 1, 1968, from Thomas Murphy, Superintendent of Indian Affairs, and to the Honorable N.G. Taylor, Commissioner of Indian Affairs, Washington, D.C. Sir, I have the honor to inform you that I held a council today with the Arapahoes and Apache Indians, at which I explained to them why their arms and ammunition had been withheld, that the white settlers were now well armed and determined that no more raids should be made through their country by large bodies of Indians, and that while whites were friendly and well disposed towards the Indians, yet if the Indians attempted another raid such as they recently made on the Kaw Reservation, I feared themselves and the whites would have a fight, and they'd bring on war. The head chief of the Arapahoes, Little Raven, replied that no more trips would be made by his people into the settlements, that their hearts were good toward the whites, and they wished to remain at peace with them. I told him I would now give them their arms and ammunition, that I hoped they would use them for the sole purpose of securing food for themselves and families, and that in no case would I ever hear of their using these arms against their white brethren. Little Raven and the other chiefs then promised that these arms should never be used against the whites, and Agent Winecop then delivered the Arapahoes 100 pistols, 80 Lancaster rifles, 20 kegs of powder, one and a half kegs of lead, and 15,000 caps. And to the Apaches he gave 40 pistols, 20 Lancaster rifles, 3 kegs of powder, and one half keg of lead, and 5,000 caps, for which they seemed much pleased. I would have remained here to see the Cheyennes, did I deem it important to do so. From what I can learn, there will be no trouble whatsoever with them. They will come here, get their ammunition, and leave immediately to hunt buffalo. They are well and peacefully disposed toward the whites, and unless some unlooked-for event should transpire to change their present feelings, they will keep their treaty pledges. 
This certainly reads well, and at Washington or further east would be regarded as a favorable indication of the desire for peace on the part of the Indians. The reader is asked to remember that the foregoing letters and extracts are from professed friends of the Indian and advocates of what is known as the peace policy. The letter of Superintendent Murphy was written the day of Council, August 1. Mark his words of advice to Little Raven as to how the arms were to be used, and note Little Raven's reply containing his strong promises of maintaining friendly relations with the whites. Yet, the second night following the issue of the arms, a combined war party of Cheyennes and Arapahoes, numbering over 200 warriors, almost the exact number of pistols issued at the council, left the Indian village to inaugurate a bloody raid in the Kansas settlement, and among the Arapahoes was the son of Little Raven. By reading the speech made by this chief in the council referred to by Mr. Murphy, a marked resemblance will be detected to the stereotype responses delivered by Indian chiefs visiting the authorities of Washington, or when imposed upon the credulous and kind-hearted people who assemble at Cooper Institute periodically to listen to these untutored orators of the plains. The statements and promises uttered in one instance are fully and reliable as those listened to so breathlessly in the others. Regarding the raid made by the Cheyennes and the Arapahoes, it will be considered sufficient, perhaps, when I base my statement upon the following. Report of an interview between Colonel E. W. Weinkopp, United States Indian agent, and the Little Rock, a Cheyenne chief, held at Fort Larn, Kansas, August 19, 1868, in the presence of Lieutenant S. M. Robbins, 7th United States Cavalry, John S. Smith, United States Interpreter, and James Morrison, Scout for Indian Agency. Question by Colonel Weinkopp. Six nights ago, I spoke to you in a regard to the depredations committed on the saline. I told you to go and find out by whom these depredations were committed, and to bring me straight news. What news do you bring? Little Rock. I took your advice and went there. I am now here to tell all I know. This war party of Cheyennes, which left the camp of these tribes above the forks of the Walnut Creek about the 2nd or 3rd of August, went out against the Pawnees, crossed the Smoky Hill about Fort Hayes, and thence proceeded to the Saline, where there were ten lodges of Sioux in the Cheyenne camp when this war party left, and about twenty men of them, and four Arapahoes accompanied the party. End of chapter 11, part 1